Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The UK economy has an unusual problem. We're struggling to fill vacancies. The government wants as many people as possible to get back to work. But it's not easy if you've got small children. It's just a constant struggle to, to make the numbers work. With childcare costs soaring, it's not just parents who are suffering. Nurseries across the country are being forced to close. For a lot of people, the cost of childcare now is equivalent to their monthly wage. So for parents, that leaves you in a position of thinking, do I continue to work? Meanwhile, for the government, it's a case of crisis? What crisis? The government's position going into the debate was there's not a problem and we're not going to do anything about it. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, childcare in crisis. My oldest child is nearly five, so he's just started school this September, and my younger one is two and a half. Rosie Kinchin is a feature writer at the Sunday Times. So we've been in the childcare world for a few years now, and trying to navigate it has always been a challenge. They are being very quiet in the background. <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're not in the house at the moment, that's why, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> We seem to be sort of suddenly plunged into a childcare crisis that I think a lot of people weren't really aware of until it's pushed itself onto the political agenda. Just before we get started, I mean, could you explain what we mean by childcare here? What sort of age range are we looking at and what sort of care? It basically is used for anything before school starts. So from naught to five, what you do with your children is, is childcare. From five onwards... The education of children is the responsibility of the state and it's done at schools. Anything that happens to your children before that is, is childcare and it's a parent's responsibility. It's always been seen as a private thing. For most parents, that means relying on a nursery for childcare. But nurseries across the UK have been struggling financially for years and the pandemic has just made things worse. 442 nurseries were forced to close over the past year alone, a 35% increase on the year before. Rosie has been speaking to a number of people who run nurseries, including Alison Dyke, 
who explains some of the pressures they face. Alison Dyke had been running nurseries for 15 years. Her first one in Warwickshire was she ran it out of a farmhouse and she really pioneered the kind of spending as much time as possible outdoors with children, getting them to interact with nature. She won Nursery of the Year in 2016. She sold that nursery and she started a new one in rugby. So it was an urban environment, but she wanted to get a lot of the same ethos into her approach to children. She's always taken pride in providing a good quality of care going above and beyond for those early years age group. I mean, that sounds like a a really wholesome, varied experience for, for young kids. What happened to her nursery when the pandemic hit? Well, they'd been struggling to make the finances work before the pandemic hit, but the pandemic just made everything considerably worse. So she furloughed most of the staff, but she kept two on full time and they became everything. They did the cooking, the cleaning, they were working sort of constantly in order to keep the the business going during that intense period through various lockdowns. She told me that she really wanted to stay open for the children of key workers. If they'd closed, that would have meant other people not being able to do their jobs. And what happened to Alison's nursery? The plan had been to pass the business on to to family members who also worked in childcare and wanted to to continue what she was doing. But they reassessed, in light of COVID, they reassessed the, the finances and just decided that it, it wasn't a viable business anymore. And so they decided not to take it on. And Alison equally just, she'd put £7,000 of her own savings into the business to keep it going during lockdown. And um, the money just didn't work anymore. So she's she's made the sad decision to, to close the business. I mean, that's a, a financial hit. It must also have been an emotional one. How, how is she? Yeah, I mean, she sounded pretty demoralised on the phone. Successive blows have hit this sector and people have have tried very hard to make their businesses work. You know, there's been a genuine desire to try and move things around, to try and keep things afloat. People like Alison take great pride in what they were doing. It wasn't, it's not just about making, getting a business that works. It's about providing good quality care for for young children. But there comes a time when you don't feel that you're getting the support you need and it's just no longer viable. Is this a problem that's affecting nurseries across the country? Is it just in cities? Is it everywhere? No, I think I think it's it's everywhere, but it's more acute in poorer areas. So I think the the statistics show that before the pandemic, 17% of nurseries in the poorest parts of the UK were facing closure. And in the 12 months leading up to March this year, 11,000 nursery places were lost overall due to closures. So it's clearly really hard at the moment to keep a nursery open if you're running one. What about the people who work there? I mean, what is it like for you if if you're an average nursery worker at the moment? I think it's pretty grim. It's entirely standard now for nursery workers to be paid the minimum wage, which is £8.91 for anyone over the age of 23. The living wage is £10.85. And I spoke to people who'd been paid that minimum wage in London, which is under the living wage in London. It's incredibly difficult to make a living, to actually survive, just, you know, when you think of of rents and, and the cost of living in a city like that. I mean, talk us through what sort of responsibilities do they have? I think the way most nurseries are set up is that children have a key worker. So you're that, you're that child's sort of caring presence for the entire time that their parents are working. So it's, you know, there's a lot that's involved in that. There's, you know, a great deal of patience. There's 
emotion there's you know engaging them in in learning and activities the you know, multi sensory skills and all these different things that children are trying to pick up at that age and that they need to pick up there's also tears and tantrums and and temperatures and all the all the things you need to know how to look after children of that age and that is any as any parent knows it's very difficult to do and I spoke to managers of nurseries as well and they felt really quite upset that they were in a position where they were having to pay people minimum wage because otherwise the business just couldn't survive and they want to invest in in their young staff you know apprentices I think are paid less than five pounds an hour they want those people to develop their skills they want them to have a career path and some some way of progressing within the sector if none of that is open to you then there's very little to stay for you know you can see why people do leave and is that affecting the the quality of care that's now available? From my experience of nurseries, I would say it definitely is. I think that when when we had my eldest son in a nursery, we found that the t- staff turnover was very high. We found that the key workers were often not there because they were having to be emergency moved into a different room to fill in a spot that had been vacated, which meant that the children didn't have, they didn't recognise the same person every day. It was all a bit bewildering and it was really quite upsetting. You know, we've looked now at the, the problem of running nurseries or working at them and how finances are clearly re- really low. What about parents? This is clearly an issue that is, you know, that they're really alarmed by, but how are they being affected? So the the statistics are are pretty stark. The price of a one-year-old's nursery place rose four times faster than wages between 2008 and 2016, and more than seven times faster in London. Wow. So that gives you an idea of how how bad the problem's got. And then the, a survey by the of 20,000 working parents, which Mumsnet organised, revealed that a third of parents spend more on childcare than they do on their rent or their mortgage. And bearing in mind that rents and mortgages are pretty high at the moment as well, I think that gives you a really strong indication of how difficult it is. That's extraordinary. I mean, from the parents you've spoken to, how are they coping? Oh, I think it's just it's just a constant struggle to to make the numbers work. I mean, and and people are having to do things like scaling back working hours. I mean, for for a lot of people, the cost of childcare now is equivalent to their monthly wage. So for parents, that leaves you in a position of thinking, do I continue to work even though I'm cutting even at the end of the month, simply because I still keep a career path open for myself in the long run? Or do I just look after my own child? And which, you know, lots of parents want to do that. And that's absolutely fine. But there are there are equally others who would like to keep working and would like to be able to put their child into a good, comfortable childcare arrangement where they're confident they're being well looked after. And just to give us a sense to to really illustrate it for people who don't have children of that age, if you were in London, you you had the average of two children uh, who were of nursery age and you earn an average median salary. I mean, what are the numbers? So the average cost of a full-time nursery place for two children in the UK is £526 a week and the median salary is £585 a week. So there's very little difference. And in London and South East, that cost goes up quite a lot. So how is it that parents are having to pay more than ever, but at the same time, nursery workers aren't earning enough and nurseries are buckling under financial pressure? Where is the money going? We'll have more in just a moment. But first... 
This is Oliver Moody, the Berlin correspondent for The Times and The Sunday Times. Thanks to the Stories of Our Times podcast, I've been able to bring you in-depth reports from the heart of Europe, from Angela Merkel's legacy and the assassination of the Swedish Prime Minister Olof Palme, to an investigation into how a former Third Reich official became one of the architects of modern Germany. This podcast only exists because of the subscribers to The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You may not have noticed it. It seems to have crept up on us all. But the country is facing a childcare crisis. Why is it that parents are paying four times more than they used to, and yet nurseries can barely afford to pay their staff? The answer, believe it or not, lies in government policy. Bear with me. Here's a quick guide. Back in 1998, New Labour unveiled their childcare strategy, which involved short start centres for the most deprived areas and a commitment to offering 15 hours of free childcare a week to parents with three- to four-year-olds. Now, 15 hours wouldn't be enough to cover childcare for full-time workers, and it was only available for 38 weeks a year, roughly term time at school, so working parents would have to pay for the extra weeks. Then, in 2015, David Cameron's coalition government wanted to expand the policy, particularly as short start centres were now being shut down because of austerity and more parents were struggling with childcare. So it was introduced in 2015 as part of the coalition government's childcare bill, which was that they expanded the offering of 15 free hours, which already existed, 15 free hours for all children aged three and four. They expanded that to 33 hours for working parents. I mean, digging into the policy, that 
that sounds like quite a useful measure for parents. That gives them more free hours. You'd expect childcare costs to have fallen. Yeah, and it was announced as, you know, a landmark measure designed to ease the pressure of working parents. It sounded great. We need to support the childcare sector to deliver this. Because if you're doubling the number of free hours Mm. available to parents, you've got to make sure that the hourly rates that the childcare providers get is the right rate and they can deliver it. But the reality has not turned out that way. And that's because nurseries started to report very quickly that the central funding pot that the government had committed to until 2021, the policy came into effect in 2017. So they'd put 3.5 billion in to this central pot. And the nurseries started reporting very quickly to the various charities involved in the sector that it wasn't enough. That it was It was way below what they would have got normally on the market and way below what it costs to actually provide those hours. Researchers in the sector have found that on average funding paid to providers for three and four-year-olds is £4.43 per hour from government. So the shortfall for each child is £1.87 per hour, which adds up to £2,132 per child per year. So that's the shortfall that they're getting per child per year. So how do they make up for the shortfall? Are they asking parents to, to, to pay for some of what should be free childcare? So they've had to raise the, the costs of those extra hours as far as they can go. They've started charging for additional extras like nappies and food, and they've had to pay their workers less. So it's, it's become very, very difficult. Where has this all gone wrong? I mean, is this sort of a universal problem? Are we seeing it in other countries or is it something specific about the way we've handled childcare here? No, I think the problem exists a bit in other countries, but it's it's considerably worse here than it is in others. We're the third most expensive um, in the world behind only Switzerland and Slovakia. There are a number of reasons for that. So the countries that have the most effective and efficient systems don't have that line dividing the two. So the state offers a form of care. Main problem with our system, moving away from from this particular policy, which has brought things to a crisis point, is that we have this division of childcare, which is a parent's responsibility, private issue and a parent's responsibility, and early years education, more or less from cradle all the way up to the end of school. And the division is simply that some of it is early years and preschool and some of it is within the school system. But irrespective, it's offered, it's an entitlement. It's available for everybody, it's free, and the people who are providing it, the nursery workers, you know, public employees, employees of the state, they're remunerated at a reasonable rate, they have a degree of job security, and it's a respected job. So is that the biggest crisis here? Is that the problem? Does the government just need to pay more for nursery care? I think that there needs to be a proper conversation about what we want our childcare system to achieve and how we want to deliver that. And I don't think that's ever happened. I think the closest that we ever got to that was in the new Labour years. They did make a big show of wanting to talk about early years childcare provision and they wanted to level out inequality. And and that's, I think, why the 15 free hours were introduced in the first place it was it was in order to help you know children coming from deprived backgrounds to make sure that to level off the playing field so that when they they started school at a, at a more even level they were they were getting the same access 
Yeah, because we are told that those are crucial years in terms of child development. Yeah, I mean, various politicians have argued over the years that, that that's where inequality starts, actually. You know, we can talk about Oxbridge all we want, but really there are a lot of, of key skills that are taught in those early years that, that not all children are getting access to at the same level. This has all now come to a head because there are so many parents across the country who are alarmed that they've pushed for a petition which has forced a parliamentary debate. Tell me about that. What's, what's come of it? ...on childcare funding and affordability. This petition is about the need for an independent review of childcare funding. The, the debate in the Commons happened because of a, of a petition that had been launched by Pregnant Then Screwed, the charity, and Grazia, the women's magazine. Great name for a charity. It is, isn't it? Pregnant um, and Screwed. And Grazia in particular, so they said that it's one of the issues that comes up time and time again for their readers. It got over 100,000 signatures in a week. So the, the debate happened, and it was the first, it's been the first debate to happen on early years childcare in two and a half years in Westminster, which gives you an indication of how high a priority it's been for the government for the last few years. The government's position going into the debate was there's not a problem and we're not going to do anything about it because we're in the middle of a, a government spending review and it doesn't make any sense to talk about this as a separate issue while the spending review is ongoing. And that more or less is, well, that was their position before the debate and that seems to be their position after the debate. So the government are clearly looking at it in terms of funding and in terms of finances and spending. Do they at least acknowledge that life has become really difficult for parents and for people who are trying to run nurseries? Do they acknowledge that there is a problem? No, I don't think they think that. that no, the position is that there isn't a problem. They're just sort of denying that there's that the nursery closures are happening, as far as I can tell. It's a strange position. We have regular contacts with local authorities, and we are not hearing systemic um, failures in any local area about parents not being able to access childcare. They may not be able to get exactly the place at exactly the flexibility that they would most like, but there is not, as I said, a systemic shortage. This is clearly having a, a really awful impact on the people who have young children who are being affected by this, who are feeling the squeeze. But it also has a much broader sort of effect on society. I mean, is, is it affecting women's ability to go, to go back to work? Is it affecting gender roles? Yeah, uh, the, the, again, the, the statistics show a pretty bleak picture, which is that almost 87,000 women would like to go would like to work but can't because of the cost of childcare and 61.7% of women who do go back to work either work fewer hours have changed jobs or have stopped working due to childcare costs we're seeing a lot of of frustrated and and angry and exhausted <laughs> women trying to make careers work with young children i mean i have to admit this is something that i hadn't really been aware of and i think it does cost you know, a lot of things um, in a slightly different light. In particular, I'm thinking of a story which popped up recently, which I know you covered, um, about the case of Alice Thompson. I mean, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so Alice Thompson won a sex discrimination case against her employer, who was an estate agency, and she'd been a high flyer before she'd had her, her first child. And then after her maternity leave, she put in a flexible working request. So you were asking to leave an hour earlier than you normally would. Exactly. I think you were asking to move down to a four-day week instead of a yeah. five-day week. Yes, it's, um, it was just impossible to work childcare around full-time work. And they turned down that request. 
she was forced to give up her job basically and she so she took them to a tribunal um and won it was a significant payout over a hundred thousand pounds and there was quite a lot of skepticism in the way the story was reported at the time because there was a sense that it was unreasonable of her to expect that that flexibility and i think that the argument in this case was that they hadn't considered the request if one woman off the back of this going back to work after becoming a mum her employer thinks I should grant this lady flexible working because, you know, that's the right thing to do and the penalties are harsh if I don't. That's the great win for me. I think it's happening a lot more than we possibly realise because I think that there are not that many people in her position who would have the energy to fight a tribunal case, which in general, her payout was pretty big. But I think most tribunals, the payouts are very small. They're very stressful. You don't have much support at all. It's a slog, you know, and, and you've, you at that point in life, you don't have much money, you don't have much time, and you've got, frankly, quite a lot of other things to be worrying about. So you can see why we don't hear that many tribunal cases at the moment. But it does sort of start to give you an insight into just the sort of pressures that a lot of women who work are now facing. What sort of effect do you think this is having on on the economy at large? Because, you know, we are in that sort of post-pandemic phase of recovery. We need it. We want all hands to, to deck. We want the economy to thrive again. How hard is that going to be? Yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be a lot harder. I mean, the, the statistics that I've seen on this, and they are old now, we have to make that point, but leaked Treasury documents from 2015 said that if our childcare system worked as well as one of the four or five best in the world, they estimated another 1.4 million would be in the workplace. If you think about that, firstly, that's enormous. And secondly, we're at a point where we need a strong economy. We need people working. The human cost is really terrible in my view, but I think that this government should understand the importance of the economics of it even more. And if this crisis isn't solved, if when the government comes to look at the the money they've got in the spending review and they don't think they have any more to allocate to childcare, how do you see it playing out? What sort of impact might it have? Well, I think we probably will see further decline in birth rates. I mean, already I think that the lockdown baby boom never happened. You know, people just, there's a lot of uncertainty, especially amongst the young at the moment. There's a lot of debt. The cost of living is very high. It's already very hard to get yourself into any place of financial security. And people don't really like the idea of having children until they're in a place of financial security. I mean, until they can get this work to sort it out, it's just, it's just going to make things worse. The reality is that you can't, for a society to function, you need... <laughs> You need young people. You don't. You can't just have an aging population, and that's going to be a problem in the long term. And for for people younger, people who are, who are thinking about being parents or who have just recently become parents, I mean, it's already a generation that's squeezed in so many other ways. Tell us a bit about about the pressures that that most of them will be facing. Yeah, I think there's there's a huge amount of pressure. The cost is high and very difficult. It makes it unaffordable. It makes childcare unaffordable unless you're well off, which is already unfair and causing problems. There aren't enough nursery places. There's a panic and a rush when before even a child is born of anxiety about whether you're actually going to be able to find one. And then if it becomes too difficult or or the nursery, you, you can't be, be comfortable that the nursery is providing the level of care that your child needs and you're not making any money anyway, it but you'll leave the labour market. And, and that's that's sad. Once you've left, it's very hard to get back in again. So that has long-term consequences. So it's it's a mess, I think. And, you know, on top of that, 
everyone and I you know everyone I know is reliant on grandparents so we've got an older generation who are basically stepping in to do childcare in vast numbers because there's no other option is there any hope is it is, is there are there any solutions that you can sort of see on the horizon that, that might be able to fix the crisis I think that there are various things that they could do I'm not sure that I see any particularly strong indications that they are going to do them but one of the things that Stella Creasy, the, the Labour MP who attended the debate, mentioned to me was that at the moment, the Treasury benefits from 670,000 people who are not claiming their child tax credit for available for families with a child under 16, even though they're entitled to it, which means that there's 2.49 billion going unclaimed. The minister will no doubt point to the universal credit system, but that system doesn't make sense in the real world either, because it expects parents to pay for childcare up front and then be able to recoup the costs. As if parents on universal credit have spare cash to begin with. I'd love to say that there was someone taking an interest in this, but I, it's not currently a priority for the Labour or the Conservative parties. And no one, I think it's very easy for things like this to get lost in the chaos of, of post-pandemic recovery. There are so many other big things going on that people are very angry and very worried about. But this is crucial. It really is crucial that we find a way of sorting this out so that people who want to work can work. And on, on the other side, for, for the children too, I suppose, you know, as you, as you mentioned, that does seem to be the key moment when their life chances can be defined by, by the care that they receive in those years. Is it sort of just a really important investment in terms of our future economy too? Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, these are children, we're especially seeing the, those who, who were born in the pandemic have, have not been particularly well socialised uh, because they haven't had a, that as an option. So the idea of getting children into some kind of preschool, kindergarten arrangement where they can interact with one another, we can make sure that the development mental um, achievements are being levelled out before they start school is really important. It's really important that we invest in that. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, feature writer at The Sunday Times, Rosie Kinchin. You can read all of Rosie's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Josh and Chana, and the executive producer today is Asia Fuchs, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line. You can email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.